The Chauvin and Potter trials are the current shiny thing in front of us, but they are not designed to have any impact on what policing is or how it functions. Trials ask the wrong questions. They're structured to be adversarial and the outcomes are either self-important endorsements that the system works or an application of criminal penalties that just further entrenches a death machine. The issue is not accountability or training or the racial and gender makeup of a police force or where cops live. It's about the fundamental function of policing. This is We Form the Future, a podcast and radio show that is meant to empower Black voices and our community. I'm your host, and my name is Jasmine. I'm a multidisciplinary artist, creative writer, and public speaker from the Twin Cities of Minnesota. I'm also a believer in the idea that the future is up to us. I believe that we can form the future to support and benefit us for generations to come. And I'm excited, so excited, to share with you the inspiring stories and revolutionary ideas in this podcast. Each week on We Form the Future, a different individual or organization will bring us varying perspectives on the Black experience and explore novel approaches to life, art, existing social structures, and new ways to form a better future. We Form the Future is created by WFNU Frogtown Community Radio and funded by the Transformative Black-Led Futures Fund, whose goal is to support those who are responding to the political and cultural opportunity to defund the police and begin the transition process toward developing and implementing a shared vision of community-led safety and investment. We Form the Future is aired on WFNU LP 94.1 FM Frogtown Community Radio in St. Paul every Saturday at 1 p.m. You can learn more about this program by visiting weformthefuture.com. What's up and welcome back to another episode on We Form the Future. Happy Saturday. On today's episode, we have a panel speaking on abolition and how individuals define abolition through the lens of the Derek Chauvin case. As we may or may not know, Derek Chauvin was actually the first police officer to be charged with the death of a black man in Minnesota. The question in pursuit of abolition remains as many parts of our community still feel conflicted and unjust in response to the unprecedented trial. Between Minneapolis, where the tragedy happened, and support of the nation and parts of the world, actually, we're all trying to imagine what justice looks like for George Floyd and for all the other lives that ended like his. Today's panel will feature faculty of Prescott College's social and community organizing program, moderated by Serene Sada. Prescott College is a liberal arts college offering bachelor's, master's, and PhD programs in sweet areas like environmental studies, education, counseling, and mental health, art, social justice, and sustainability, critical psychology, and more. Again, thanks for tuning in. It's so sweet to have you with us for another episode. Let's get straight to it. Hello and welcome to SJCO Presents. Uh, it, this is a production of the master's program in social justice and community organizing at Prescott College. Uh, my name is Zoe Hammer and I'm the co-director of the program with Anita Fernandez. Um, and we're, we're very honored today to have four of our outstanding faculty members um, who are here today bringing abolitionist perspectives, context and analysis to help us make 
political sense of the trial of Derek Chauvin. Thank you, Professor Hammer. First question is, what is your name, your pronouns, and a bit about your background, and how do you define abolition? So again, what is your name, your pronouns, and a bit about your background, and how do you define abolition? Um, thank you for having me. Thank you for coordinating us, Serene and Zoe. Um, my name is Rachel Herzing. I'm calling today from Ohlone Territory in uh, Oakland, California. Um, I am a person who's done organizing activism and community education, um, mostly around hopes to eliminate the violence of imprisonment and policing since, I don't know, the 90s at some point. Um, and in terms of um, describing abolition, I think two things, like one is I think we should be cautious about um, just kind of saying abolition without being more specific about what we mean. So I will be clear that I'll be speaking today about prison industrial complex abolition. Um, and by that, I mean a political praxis that seeks to eliminate the use of surveillance, policing, sentencing, imprisonment, execution, um, and to build healthy, stable, self-determined societies that don't rely on coercion or vengeance to address harm. Um, and I just wanna mention, I think it's, we should be cautious a little bit about acting as if prison industrial complex abolitionist politics are kind of like a choose your own adventure situation. Um, the proponents of these politics probably describe them in different ways, might choose to highlight different aspects of those politics and may work to advance them differently. But we're all talking about a specific set of politics that carries with it also a coherent set of obligations. So that's what I will say about that. Uh, Kim Wilson, I use uh, she, her pronouns. I'm the co-host and producer of the Beyond Prisons podcast. I also have uh, two sons currently sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, I've been engaged in doing not only direct support, but other organizing work uh, to support people in prisons for the better part of the last 10 years. Um, and uh, in terms of you know how I define abolition, I would echo um, what Rachel just said and really you know add that the my thinking around abolition really does challenge the idea that punishment is the appropriate response to harm, um, and that you know prisons don't really tackle the root causes of harm. Instead, prisons are places that perpetuate harm. So that's um, what I would add to you know, Rachel's definition. Uh, I'm Craig Gilmore. I use uh, mostly he pronouns. Um, I'm calling from Lisbon, Portugal. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, and most of the political organizing I've done has been in California and has been around work to find connections among or between um, prison and policing issues and issues of education equity, uh, prison and policing issues and environmental justice questions and sought to um, link those fights. So I want to, uh, I want to echo two things that, uh, that Rachel has said. One is that there are a million different definitions of, of abolition and that um, it's tricky. I mean, to say, uh, I, love, I love the prompt of what was, what was our definition. But I think we should be careful about using the word 
and presuming that it means the same thing for any other person. Um, so there are a number of people who are abolitionists out in the world whose politics I barely recognize. Um, but that's their, that's their definition. That's the world they're working in. The other thing I would like to underline that Rachel said is that for, for me, abolition is a praxis. And I see a lot of stuff floating around, and I have for years, in which the idea, abolition is thought of as a set of ideas or a set of ethical principles. And it has a rich set of ideas and ethical principles. But those ideas are not only grounded in political praxis, they come out of political praxis. So the idea that there's an idea that abolitionists have these pie in the sky ideas that they try and for these people sometimes fail to apply on the ground. And what they don't recognize is that those ideas came out of the ground, came out of our prisons, our jails, uh, our neighborhoods with their, their full of uh, families with incarcerated loved ones, and the struggles that those people have been in, uh, certainly for the last 25 years, and I think I would argue for hundreds of years before that. So I would also, I think, want to link my understanding of prison abolition um, to what Cedric Robinson calls the Black radical tradition and a set of freedom struggles, not exclusively set among African and African descended people, from my perspective, that's where I'm coming from, from that particular tradition. But I think there are a number of liberatory traditions which meet prison and police abolition in the present. And it's a very, very rich political stew at the moment. Thank you for that. The next question is for, um, we'll begin actually with Rachel. Um, and, and just to begin, in May 2020, Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck for over eight minutes. Um, and what we actually know is actually over nine minutes now. Chauvin was subsequently charged with second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. The trial is ongoing and closing arguments are set for Monday the 19th um, so of this month. Last week at the same time, Brooklyn Center, um, Brooklyn Center officer Kim Potter was charged with second-degree manslaughter for the death of Duante Wright. Potter argues that she accidentally shot Wright, who she says she had meant to tase. For the first time in Minnesota history, one white Minnesota officer is on trial for the death of a black man, and a second officer has been charged. This is unprecedented. But my question to you is, what is the abolitionist response to this moment? My understanding that Prison industrial complex abolitionist politics are grounded in a set of obligations. So I think my response to the question um, is that a person who's serious about advancing prison industrial complex abolitionist politics will begin from those obligations. They will probably think about their commitment to eliminating the use of all parts of the prison industrial complex. So they won't be tricked into thinking that a court trial is anything more substantive than a sideshow, no matter how unprecedented it is, right? They will likely shift the center of gravity away from the cops and the courts toward developing practices, institutions, and tools that help people in their communities, however people define community, um, to begin to eliminate the violence of policing and to build up the capacity to make that elimination both possible and lasting. 
They'll remember their obligation to do all of this collectively and with humility and respect for the long line of people before them who have contributed to the thinking and doing that creates the possibility that we actually could get more and better than what we currently have. So I think for my own part, while I can't and will not speak on behalf of all self-professed abolitionists, and as Craig mentioned, there's a lot of them out there these days compared to previous periods. Um, despite that, I do think that there are a couple of things that are really important to remember. So I will raise those up. One, the Chauvin and Potter trials are the current shiny thing in front of us, but they are not designed to have any impact on what policing is or how it functions. And I think it's important for us not to be distracted by them. That's not to say that we shouldn't be mindful of how they're capturing the attention of people around us or the impact that they'll have on the culture. They are designed to offer nothing of value, however, to people who are serious about prison industrial complex abolition. Trials ask the wrong questions. They're structured to be adversarial and the outcomes are either self-important endorsements that the system works or an application of criminal penalties that just further entrenches a death machine. So we shouldn't be fooled that cops being sacrificed. And I actually don't doubt in this case that Chauvin may be sacrificed, um, but I don't think that we should act as if that's indicative of some kind of transformation. While these trials may be unprecedented in Minnesota, they're not in the United States. So for instance, some of you may be familiar with the, a case from where I live in Oakland, California. Um, Oscar Grant III was shot dead by Johannes Messerly. Messerly was convicted, was sentenced and served time. He now polices for a private security company in Southern California. And nothing substantively changed about policing in Oakland. And it won't until we start looking more seriously at what policing is and what it's designed to do. The issue is not accountability or training or the racial and gender makeup of a police force or where cops live. It's about the fundamental function of policing. And I think until we earnestly um, endeavor to denaturalize policing and question why it's used, the rest is more kind of window dressing than any kind of meaningful change. So that's, I guess, how this prison industrial complex abolitionist might respond to the moment. I, I, I had a chance to interview somebody recently who it had been incarcerated um, about how he was feeling recently. And he goes, I don't wish prison for Chauvin. I don't think that's the just response. I don't think that's the response that gets us to a, a space of transformation. And I'm struck by that again now, um, as we think about the future and as we think about the violence that's been hitting the, the criminalization of protesters that's been hitting people in Minneapolis every night, um, even in the last week, um, and just how challenging this moment has been. Next question is for Kim. Um, in my other life, I run a small community journalism outlet. One of my writers is incarcerated at a local prison and he and I had talked recently about abolition in our correspondences. So my question to you today comes directly from those conversations. And the second half of the question comes directly from Jermaine and some of the other men um, that we are training there. Can you discuss the current state of the prison industrial complex and the various abolitionist movements that are responding to that complex? 
how can incarcerated people participate in and work towards abolition? Thank you for uh, that question. To begin, I think it might be useful uh, to define what we mean when we're talking about the PIC. So I think I'd like to start really by defining or providing some kind of working definition on what uh, I mean or what we mean when we're talking about um, the PIC. So, uh, and this builds on, you know, what other people have said. So this is an, uh, an original kind of uh, definition. I think of it as a web that includes things like the military, corporations, government, uh, policies, the legal system, as well as institutions, you know, uh, education, healthcare, the media, and so on. Um, and all of these things rely and reinforce the oppression of targeted groups through prisons, policing, and surveillance. Uh, in addition to that, you know, we, we can think of this complex web of relationships. We can think of the PIC as a complex web of relationships and arrangements that are set up to benefit people in power, right, and to uphold white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. The PIC is constantly shape-shifting and expanding. Uh, it's reached into our communities and into our lives in different ways, including through things that we often may not see or recognize as being carceral. Um, the ability of the PIC to constantly redraw the line, and I mean that quite you know, literally and, and metaphorically, uh, means that we're always having to fight on multiple levels, on multiple fronts. Literally speaking, we can look at the ways that this line is drawn and redrawn in terms of things like borders, uh, in terms of you know how districts are drawn for the sake of funding and representation. Uh, and we can also think of it more abstractly in terms of how the uh, PIC draws lines around things like gender and class. At its core, the PIC is a tool of oppression. Uh, over this past year and in the midst of a global pandemic, and I want to, you know, really emphasize that we've seen how these various mechanisms of the PIC, policing, prisons, and surveillance have been used in a, an attempt to undermine and destroy radical organizing and resistance, but this isn't new. We've also seen an unprecedented shift in the conversation around PIC abolition that builds on decades-long organizing efforts. And I think it's important to underscore this because many people seem to be under the misapprehension that PIC abolition was something that started in 2020 when it did not. Um, this is, you know, the fact that we were talking about it in earnest last year and there were so many articles and things that were published um, that described, you know, abolition and what was happening and what is happening uh, it built on that decades long um, tradition and uh, of organizing. Now, at the risk of mixing my metaphors here, um, I'm going to, you know, describe it as a web, but also thinking about the way that the PIC has all of these tentacles um, and that these things reach into our daily lives, uh, at least for, you know, some of us. And we're always aware of how the PIC is present in our lives and it has this power uh, to destroy us. Uh, one way that I see this happening and, you know, um, folks are, you know, uh, may disagree is in a way that we think about things like reentry, for example. Um, you know, when we talk about reentry, we tend to talk about things like recidivism. And recidivism is seen as a measure of individual failure, right, when it actually reflects the failure of the state to provide for people's basic needs. 
We blame individuals for failing to comply with things like uh, probation and parole requirements, and we create the conditions for people to be returned to prison for minor violations. If I were to assess um, the current state of the PIC, I would say that it derives its power from both being very hyper-visible as well as you know, obscuring uh, its, its reach and power. And how it's woven into so many different things of you know, different areas of our lives. I mean, the uh, George Floyd protests took place in the middle of a global pandemic. Right, a global pandemic that in the U.S. has killed over 500,000 people, and I don't want to lose sight of that of that fact. Um, in addition, you know the disposability of you know many groups of people in this country, including older people, um, were things that people flippantly were talking about. Politicians were saying it's okay if older people die; they should be willing to die. Um, and when we look at you know what was happening in prisons uh, last year, and that's where I was focusing you know my efforts and uh, trying to do you know um, that work. People in prison were suffering tremendously uh, as a result of, you know, the pandemic, but also all of the other things that that were happening, including, you know, um, the protests. Uh, people's lives were being threatened, not just by, you know, this um, this virus, but also in terms of, you know, you're in prison and you're around a bunch of white supremacist cops, right? Or cops, uh, we can use that. Um, term almost interchangeably in my view. Uh, organizing against the PIC has been happening for a very long time. And this is not something that, you know, is um, a one size fits all. Uh, communities are responding to the PIC in a number of different ways. I gave a presentation the other day where I highlighted uh, several projects and I'll share a couple of those today. Uh, one of them is around the Wabanaki, um, the Wabanaki REACH program in Maine. And they provide, you know, uh, educational programs. They uh, provide a program on understanding decolonization and uh, truth and reconciliation committee, but they also support Wabanaki prisoners. So that would be an example of some of the type, you know, some of the things that are happening in, uh, in at least in that space. Another um, program that, uh, that I think is really worth highlighting is the Ujima Medics in Chicago. And we could go on and on and on and describe many examples, but I want to share those uh, those two. Ujima Medics, you know, came out of the need for people in a community to respond to, you know, people that had been shot, right, gunshot wounds, and knowing that the response time of ambulances was going to take too long and people would die. So, Basically, what they decided to do was train, you know, regular people to, you know, uh, to perform first aid. Uh, and they do all kinds of, you know, uh, first responder uh, training and street medic training that I think is uh, really important. Um, another example, and this will be the last one that I share, is a project that is fairly new in Western Massachusetts. It's called Whose Corner Is It Anyway? And this project is started, um, it, it's been developed by folks who are um, low-income survivors and street-based sex workers. And they're doing things around harm reduction, um, political education, uh, they're organizing, you know, in various ways and providing housing as well. So 
when we think about the kind of organizing that's happening, it's happening in a lot of different ways in, you know, in communities all across the country. Not all of the uh, projects, you know, um, that you may come across out there are using the A word. They're, they may not describe themselves as abolitionists, but they may indeed be doing abolitionist work. That said, however, not everyone who is, you know, engaged in housing, for example, is practicing, you know, or doing housing from an abolitionist perspective. If the housing is coercive and carceral, that's not necessarily abolitionist, right? So we want to understand um, that, you know, how you're using these uh, resources, how you're deploying these things in the community also matter in terms of how we think about them uh, regarding abolition. The next question is for uh, Craig. Um, one of the things that um, many people are likely wondering right now is why we're talking about abolition, um, particularly um, because this moment is so fraught with so much emotion and because of the charges as spectacle though they may be. Um, my question to you is why is abolition the right choice and when, if ever, is it, is, it, is, is it not the right choice? I think the important reason to talk about abolition now, what makes this trial particularly important, um, to build on both what Rachel and Kim have already said, there's a, there's a heightened awareness in the US in general about police violence. And now there's a hyper uh, concentration on this trial. And there's a danger in fact, not, it's more than a danger. The likelihood is that the result of this trial is going to be that people think something has been fixed. So one thing I think that's essential for abolitionists to do now is to repeat the sort of simple messaging that Rachel and Kim have already put forward. That is to say, we have a systemic problem here and the conviction uh, and even the incarceration of one police officer or the resignation of a police chief and one officer a few miles away is not going to change the system. We've been through this. And it's, it's a difficult lesson. In my experience, it's a difficult lesson for Americans to learn. This is from Professor Ruth Hoffman. Um, how do each one of you incorporate liberatory abolitionist practices into your day um, into your day-to-day -day work? And how does this foundation inform the way that you build relationships and do your organizing work? Thank you for that question. And thank you for framing it in a way that's not about our individual choices in our personal lives, but is in the kind of day-to-day -day, um, work that we do politically. Because I hear that question a lot of like, how do you, you know, what's your personal relationship to abolition? And I, I see it as a political project much more than the kind of lifestyle choices I make. So I appreciate the way you frame the question, Dr. Hoffman. Um, I'll say I have just kind of a list of things that I think um, the question brings up for me. And some of them are things that I've just said that I'm going to repeat. And some of them are things that I say every single time somebody asks me to talk about this. So my apologies for repetition up front. Um, I will reiterate that I think abolition is a praxis um, and a praxis rather than a destination. Um, and, you know, uh, my friend and comrade Dylan Rodriguez reminds me of this frequently, and I appreciate it every single time because 
I think, you know, it's as much about the doing as it is about where we're headed. The, the where we're headed matters to me. I do want to see the elimination of these systems. Um, and the political praxis that I'm involved in, you know, I think to the points that Craig was making is as much about being developed by the work as kind of developing the work itself. Um, so that's one thing. Um, another thing is that it encourages me all of the time to ask for what we need, not just what we think we can get or what we're told is pragmatic, right? People act as if asking for a world that is not kind of, you know, a carnival of violence is ridiculous or utopian and it's not pragmatic. We get taught that by our so-called comrades, right? And so I think it's important that all the time we're reminding ourselves that imagining that we can live under these current conditions is ridiculous. Asking for a world that is more liberated, more well, more whole is not ridiculous. Um, the approach encourages me to, to always remember to be collective and um, to not try to go it alone, that we need to build coalition, we need to build networks, we need to build movements that have the kind of staying power and allow us to kind of be bigger in size, but also more powerful in our demands. Um, we need to elevate practice and experimentation. And Kim and, and Craig, I don't know if you've experienced this recently, but recently people have been acting as if experimentation is a terrible word to use. And um, I reject that. <laughs> I think the idea of trying something out, seeing if it works, trying something out, seeing if it works, is we're obligated to do that if we want to try to organize our way into different conditions. And so um, we need space, time, ability to practice, but we also need space, time, ability to try things out and to fail and to try again. Um, I think it, the politics encourage me to operate with both patience and urgency. You know, as um, Craig was laying out, we're talking about fairly long-term organizing commitments. And at the same time, you know, we can fall into this um, idea that no win is an abolitionist win unless it's the full and total elimination of every aspect of the system. Um, and you know, that takes me, I guess, into the, the next thing that I'll talk about, which is just to reiterate this point that Craig made about purism. We need to live in the world, even as we are organizing for a different world. Um, and that doesn't mean that we just make a bunch of com uh, compromises and say, well, you know, I'm just being a pragmatist. So like I made a compromise that, you know, contradicts my core politics, but you know, that's just life. But I also think it means that we can't um, be so purist that our politics can't have any traction in the real world to the point Craig was making. And Craig has known me long enough to probably have experienced me in different versions of my own political purity. So the last thing I will say is that the politics also, I think, encourage us to be um, humble, to operate with humility and to operate with an interest in, how to say, in being transformed by the work itself, right? Um, as Mary Hooks has been suggesting that we do in recent years. 
and that we use the politics and the political practice as an opportunity to transform ourselves in relationship also to the things that we are trying to live our way into and organize our way into, and that we see them as opportunities to continue to learn and to grow and to build our skill. And I guess I'll stop there. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, I want to go back to something that uh, Craig raised uh, in responding to the last question about um, outcomes, right? That, you know, this idea that there's, um, you know, that we're focusing or we should only focus on the outcomes uh, is, you know, part of uh, what I find, you know, problematic or not very useful in terms of what Rachel was saying regarding experimentation, right? Like that when we have this rigid notion of what the outcome should be, and yes, we can, you know, many of us can agree that we want to abolish this whole thing, um, but that being limited in terms of the work that we're trying to do currently um, and willing to fail and willing to try and willing to you know, show up and, and mess up and say that we don't know um, oftentimes is, is very limiting. So I would say that you know, in terms of a praxis and how that is built into you know, things that, that I do and how I engage um, with other folks uh, is really you know, to lead with curiosity. Right, to begin from a place where I'm constantly asking questions. I'm doing more listening, uh, you know, these days than I am talking. Uh, and, you know, really paying attention to what it is that, you know, people are saying, what people need, um, what people want to do around a lot of these issues. Uh, my work with folks on the inside is really, you know, it, it's difficult work uh, to do. Right. It's difficult. Um, it, I mean, I think that movement building is difficult anywhere you're doing it. But when you're having to cross over the, that wall and you're having to deal with all of the obstacles uh, that prisons put in, you know, put in the way um, that, you know, taking the time to be quiet and to listen to people and take them seriously and take them at, you know, at their word is really important to me in terms of, you know, uh, building relationships and building the kind of uh, movement that, you know, will help us get to where it is that we say that we want to, you know, get to. Um, I think I'll, I'll leave it there. I mean, I could go on, but I think I'll, you know, I'll just leave it there. And one of the great advantages of going last in these things is that all the good stuff has been said and you can just repeat what your, your uh, fellow panelists have already said. So uh, thank you fellow panelists for making my life easier. Um, I'd like to pick up on something uh, that Kim said, not just now, but in, in her, her uh, the answer to her previous question, uh, that she encounters people whose politics, if I understood you correctly, Kim, whose politics you recognize, but they do not, you said, use the A word to describe themselves. Yeah, at least. And in terms of my everyday practice, I think that and what you were just, Kim, again, what we were just talking about in terms of listening and what Rachel was saying in terms of being humble, like, I think we can be humble and smart. And I think we can listen actively. So I want to reinforce both of those ideas, but not suggest that either of those uh, means 
uh, a sort of passivity on our part. We are actively being humble and listening. We're actively opening ourselves to who are these people I'm talking to? Where are they in the world? How do they see the world? What connections are they making? What ideas are they using to make sense of the world that they're trying to do work in? And then to think about, well, are those incompatible with my understandings of abolition or can I find bridges to be made between that world, their world and my world? So I think for me, the huge challenge has been not to convert people into abolitionists, but to get people doing what I consider to be abolitionist work, whether they consider it abolitionist work or not. I don't, I'm really not, you know, I'm not an evangelical in that sense. I'm not out saying, hey, you got to join our group. You got to think, you got to use the same vocabulary that I use. And part of that is that even though I recognize the long-term nature of this struggle, I am by nature an impatient person. You know, I want to work on a campaign in which I see a result in six months. Not, you know, I'm not very good at saying, okay, well, in 10 years, things are going to be different. It's like, great. You know, in 10 years, I'm going to be so senile. I won't remember what I did 10 years ago to do anything about that. I won't. So that for me is a tension. So I want to get people moving in what I consider to be an abolitionist direction. I want to help them shape their campaign in a way that I think is abolitionist. And in five years, six months or five years down the road, they say, hey, shit, we're doing abolition together. That's great. But if they don't, I don't care. Right? So, I mean, um, when we were organizing against um, prison expansion in Central California, we uh, we came across this Republican farmer grandma who was confused about the fact that the state of California continued to want to cite new prisons in her county, which was Tulare County. And uh, she and a handful of other ranchers fought off those prisons, but she wanted to know why they kept coming back with new proposals. So she got her grandson to teach her to use the internet and she did a little research. And she discovered that um, one, most of the people incarcerated in the Central Valley came from Los Angeles. And two, that Los Angeles had uh, stripped funding away from a lot of its public schools in brown and black neighborhoods. She became an advocate, a rural advocate, a white rural advocate in Central California for more school funding in East LA and South Central LA. She didn't become an abolitionist, but to me, she was, right? I mean, she was like a defund the police person 15 years before defund the police and coming from a completely self-interested, I mean, her self-interest was she didn't want a prison in her neighborhood and she didn't want to have to keep going to stupid city council meetings to fight these things. So that's a sort of extreme case, but I think there are so many situations in which um, people who are working, e either are themselves people who are touched by the police or are working with people who are touched by the police for incarceration. So people who work in public health, people who work in housing and public housing, people who work in education at every level, all of those people 
their professional lives and therefore their personal lives are touched by the prison industrial complex, whether they know that or not. And we can help people do that work, right? We can help people get to that. But we do that not by going in and being know-it-all lectures, but by going in and listening to them, talking with them about the problems they're trying to solve, and then suggesting that maybe we have a tool in our toolbox that will help them see the world in a way that will help them solve the problem they're already trying to solve. And that's, that's to me what abolition does. In, I mean, it's, you can do other sorts of organizing work. It doesn't have to be abolition work, but that's what abolitionist organizing looks like. It's finding people where they are, finding out what their problems are, helping them solve those problems. And in the course of solving those problems, ideally, some of them will develop politically to the point where they want to move on and continue doing the work. This next question, um, since we're still a few minutes ahead, comes from Cruz Rodriguez, um, who is here in Minneapolis. And, I th and when I think of this question, I'm thinking a lot right now about the ways in which protesters and media and medics have all been um, attacked, criminalized. Um, in fact, there's a new bill that just got introduced recently in the state legislature that would basically say if you've been arrested for any crime in a protest, you can no longer get money from the state, student loans, WIC, um, EBT, anything that would um, come from the state. Um, and so this question, this question had me thinking about all the ways in which all these groups have been demonized. Um, what role does militancy of protesters play in the fight for abolition? Because we're seeing the state create a division between peaceful protesters and violent protesters as a justification for law enforcement to brutalize all protesters. All right, I will, I will I'll start, but my guess is that um... The other two will have more interesting things to say about this than I do because I, I, this is like another one of those things where I feel like this is a distraction. This tactic is a distraction and I want us to be encouraged not to take this bait. Right? So this is a feature of the prison industrial complex. So the criminalization of dissent is what um, you know? I think is part and parcel of what we heard Kim describe so well as the prison industrial complex. So the fact of, um, if we understand policing for what it is as pure and simple containment and control of so-called unruly populations, right? And that has, dif has differed over time and looked different depending on geography, time, place, all of those things, right? Um, but at its core, it's really about containment and control and protection of the interests of the people who are using policing as a tool. So the criminalization of dissent actually has, is one of the things that has the longest history um, here in the United States when it comes to policing, whether we're thinking about um, putting down labor strikes or whether we're putting down um, young people uh, demanding different changes to how society's structure. We're talking about women fighting or gender non-conforming people fighting for um, the ability to have a rightful place in, in society. And, you know, the justification for uh, an even amplified version of policing in response to protest um, 
I think just should take us back to the nature of policing, pure and simple. Um, and so, you know, I, I think the role of militancy in protesting um, is essential, right? I mean, protest is um, an escalation tactic. Protest is not an organizing strategy. Protest is not kind of, you know, a long-term plan. It's an acceleration tactic um, and an escalation tactic. And so a level of militancy, I think, is required in, um, in how to say, in a successful protest, right? And to suggest, for instance, that um, the, the sit-ins at lunch counters weren't militant, I think, is, is a misreading of history, right? So did they punch counter workers in the face? No. Did they punch cops in the face? No. Should they have? Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I also think that the uh, this kind of distinction between violent and nonviolent gets applied throughout the entirety of the prison industrial complex and is meant to um, justify the use, the, the application of different portions of the prison industrial complex, right? So we see this inside of prisons as well, that some people are imprisoned on so-called violent felonies while there are other people who are imprisoned on so-called nonviolent um, felonies or, or, or charges is probably a better way to say that. Um, and, you know, when you kind of get into what that actually means, it's fairly arbitrary, but it has huge implications for what your imprisonment might look like. And I think we're seeing a similar thing in terms of policing, right? So this application of um, a violent uh, designation to certain sets of activities, which quite honestly, generally have no impact with other human beings, right? So it's like, you, 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 took, you took something, you liberated something out of a store, right? Or you um, expressed your frustration by taking some physical action against a building, against a state building. Right? Um, or you broke a window or you set a fire. And I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to be flip about any of that because I know that it takes a lot of, um, fortitude to take an action of that scale, especially when you know the potential blowback that's coming your way as a result of that. But I also think the idea that um, we should separate out what are the appropriate um, protest tactics into different categories, some of which are fine and respectable and upright and, and just, right, um, in kind of the understandings of, of the United States. And there are some that are lawless and brutish and, and criminal, um, undermines our overall capacity to be able to protest um, and is meant to put a chill on protest. So is meant to say, well, you, you can only go out under the terms that we set when in fact, the protests are often against the terms that are set themselves. So I, I think that, you know, what is a more powerful approach is to, is to use this kind of collective mentality, this abolitionist collective mentality, and to think about what is the shared fate of everybody out here trying to have their voices heard in whatever way they're trying to do that. And how can we stand together? We've seen, for instance, from example, 
here in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, um, that, you know, things went a lot better on the streets when protest groups that were, um, uh, you know, that were putting out an anti-status line and had kind of more um, physical tactics or were more interested in physical confrontation with white supremacists, for in instance, were able to get together with people who took different kinds of approaches to coming out and everybody saying, we're going to act in unity, even if we don't share the same tactical approaches, even if we don't necessarily agree politically that these are the appropriate tactical approaches, we understand that we're trying to get these white supremacists out of our town and we're more powerful together. So we are not gonna sell anybody out. Um, we're all gonna respect each other's approaches here. And we're gonna try to help each other um, do things in a way that get us all more of what we want. So um, as I said, I'm hoping Kim and, and Craig will be able to um, provide you a more eloquent answer than that, but that's some of what's coming to mind immediately. Uh, yeah, you're setting me up there. Um, <laughs> let's see, um, I echo everything that Rachel just said. And uh, I think that, you know, one of the things when we're thinking about the role of militancy uh, in protests is that, you know, all things have to be on the table that you can't just remove something, you know, from the table and say, this is what, you know, we're going to do. Um, the situation, if you've been out there, can be very fluid um, at times. So, you know, you have to have thought about that and talked about that before, you know, beforehand, but sometimes it's also, you know, very spontaneous and it's a response to what's going on. So I think that, you know, escalating um, in whatever way, you know, that looks like for the people that are out there on the ground and makes sense for them is important. I also want to say that whether the protests are peaceful or, you know, what, whatever we're calling peaceful uh, or, you know, more violent, I mean, attacking a building or, you know, uh, breaking a window, as Rachel said, um, is, it's like you broke a window, the window will get replaced, what's the big deal, right? It's, it, you know, uh, where's that going? It doesn't matter what your actions are, they're going to kill you. <laughs> they're killing us anyway. Right. So we can stand there and we can march peacefully. People have been crying. People have been doing this. We've been watching this, you know, uh, this spectacle. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking of it in, in the more short term since, uh, you know, Trayvon Martin was killed, where people have been taking to the streets in the last, you know, um, decade or so. And it, we're still being killed. We're still being killed, you know, and it's not just by the police, you know, stopping someone, you know, for a traffic violation. It's in all the ways that policing kills us, right? And kills us in, in ways that we're not even, um, I think, thinking about, right? And that policing is implicated in, in our lives. 
Uh, and that includes within within prisons, right? That includes within prisons. When I think of the police, I mean, it's not for any, you know, for nothing that uh, folks on the inside refer to corrections officers as the police, right? <laughs> it's like they, we know who they are, right? And we know what they're that they're willing to use their power and whatever resources are available to them to suppress, to put down any kind of dissent. And we've seen that across the board, all over this country. Last question for the group, how can we support your work? The best way to advance these politics is to work with other people and to work within structures that require you to be accountable to other people. Center for Political Education, which um, is an organization that does that. It, it does education, uh, political education for movement organizations that um, are trying to figure out how to be in better fighting form to win more of what we want. An organization that I've been affiliated with over the years called Critical Resistance. Starting to do work in most any formation with good kind of earnest, rigorous politics is a good place to start. So it is not to say that these are the only or best organizations. As Kim and, and Craig have pointed out, there are a lot of different ways to do this work. Um, being disciplined about the politics will take you a lot further than having the perfect organization. But I also think you should get involved. You should do something. Yeah, um, in terms of how folks can support the work that, uh, that I'm doing, I mean, I listen to the podcast. Um, you can go to our website. If you can't support us financially, you can always, you know, share the podcast, um, rate, review, and subscribe to it. That always, you know, helps. Um, and a podcast has been used in a lot of different settings. Um, I've we get examples every day of how folks are using it uh, in prison or how they're using it in their classroom or how they're sharing it uh, in different ways to, you know, begin conversations around prison abolition. Uh, and we've had uh, Rachel on uh, the podcast. It's been a while. We need to, you know, try to get her back um, and hoping to uh, get Craig on a podcast as well as Ruthie. Um, but yeah, they can, you know, listen, listen to the podcast. Uh, a lot of the work that I'm currently doing uh, is really informal. So like Rachel, outside of an organization, but I completely wholeheartedly, uh, and I had it in my notes right here, said join an organization. Um, <laughs> it says, you know, start where, where you are, uh, right in your community, responding to the needs um, in your local community. There are plenty of organizations you could send a $100 check to and they would love it. But the important thing, if you want to support this work, is to get involved. And I want to make a pitch for people who think they don't have anything to contribute. If you know how to use a computer, if you have a cell phone, if you have three hours, if you can carve out three hours a week, you have something to contribute, right? There are organizations that are desperate for not to be insulting about this, warm bodies with minimal skills, but you can make phone calls, you can get people to come to meetings, you can, and there's someone close to you doing work. There's a bail fund in the biggest city close to you that needs your help. 
In a county close to you, there are people fighting a new jail expansion. And that, typically those organizations are a handful of people, if that. And one more person who can contribute something is such, I mean, giving them a hundred bucks would be fantastic if that's all you can do. But if you can give them a couple hours a week, that would be so much more useful for them and for you. So I wanna make that pitch. One, get involved locally is the, is the easiest way to do it. And I guess the other pitch I will make is this. Um, we've talked uh, this afternoon almost exclusively about the United States. The forces that we're fighting against are not US specific forces. I mean, the individuals we're fighting are in the United States. But um, the particular set of structures, uh, the links between far-right organizations, the links between police and prison guards unions are international. And to the extent that we have no international awareness whatsoever, we're limiting ourselves, we're shooting ourselves in the foot because they're trading ideas internationally and we're not. I mean, some of us are, but we don't have that structure. So the other thing I would say is if you have the ability to read a language, especially uh, the ability to read a language other than English. If you have friends and relatives who live in other countries, um, if you speak only English, you know, you can still find out about what's going on in Canada and what's going on in the United Kingdom and any number of other English language speaking uh, countries in the world. And one of the things you'll find is that while the fights are very similar, the terrain on the ground is different. And one of the things that learning that does, I mean, that seems like, a, like, well, who wouldn't know that? Well, we take for granted that what's in front of us is natural. And to the extent that it's natural, it can be unchangeable. And seeing that things in Canada are not the same as things in the United States, things in the UK are not the same as, as things in the United States, helps us with a critical, critical perspective on what we're facing here, as well as puts us in con potentially puts us in contact with people who are going to share ideas with us that none of us have yet because they've been developed somewhere else. And I think that's so I would like push in two, two seemingly opposite directions. On the one hand, take your knowledge base and your imagination and go international, if not bigger. And in terms of your commitments, think locally and what you can do in your city, in your county, maybe in your state. Welcome back. Um, I just want to acknowledge that these types of conversations are mentally stimulating and it's not always in the way that you want to be stimulated. So whatever came up for you, I just want to let you know that those feelings are extremely valid, regardless if that was anger, um, understanding, peace, excitement, etc. Whatever you were feeling, it was 100% valid. And these conversations are really important in order for us to continue moving forward because the work that needs to be done is far from over. We have to constantly keep having these conversations and being put in uncomfortable positions, regardless if people may have different views from you, if people may feel differently about what you think and what you believe. All of those things are valid and it's important to bring your voice and your, your unique light into the forefront of the conversation because you never know what you can start or impact or what perspective you can bring to the space. 
But again, happy Saturday. I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day. I hope that you're feeling good. I hope that you're getting some sun. I know that it's finally spring, so I'm super excited. And we'll see you back here next week. Production of We Form the Future episodes are by Sounds Powerful Productions. We'll be back next week with another great episode. For more information on We Form the Future, visit weformthefuture.com.